The following is a presentation of A's Cast, your free 24-7 nonstop destination for A's baseball. Go to athletics.com slash A's Cast to download the app. Restrictions apply. From baseball's top personalities. The great Chris Russo joins us once again. To the game's top players. Joining us is the All-Star. Matt Chapman with us. You never know what stories you're going to hear. If you make your way down here, I, I might be able to make some time and go out there and see the great Chris Townsend. This is A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. Time now for another edition of A's Unfiltered. Today we're going to check in with the pitching coach of your Oakland Athletics, Scott Emerson, former A's pitcher Brad Ziegler, and we'll talk to former pitchers Steve McCaddy and Mike Norris as there was a great article done about the early 80s and the Oakland Athletics in The Athletic. But we'll start with our pitching coach. The insight that you get from Emo is second to none. We always love having him on the program. Emo, it's so good to have you on. We miss you. Yeah, I miss you guys. I can't wait to get back to the park. I hope it's going to be soon. When's the last time in your life you spent this much time at home? Well, you know, obviously the off season we spend, you know, three to four months at the house, but, uh, you know, I, I can't remember the last time I had an Easter at the house. Uh, spring break, my wife always gets, you know, she, she laughs when I say I never had a spring break, you know, since, you know, seventh grade uh, uh, junior high baseball. We, we had a tournament over spring break, and, and that just kind of ran through. You go into pro ball in college, you're playing baseball every spring. So, uh, you know, when I was the pitching coordinator, I try to go out for you know, 20 to 25 days and then come home for seven days and then go redo the 25 day trip again. But, uh, other than that, uh, you know, it's, it's a little bit different being at my house now, uh, and seeing the constant weather change, whether it's storms here or, or, or whether it's sunny each and every day. Ken Korak said that there's this plant at his house that has bloomed in Las Vegas during the heat that he's never seen before. And he said to his wife, what is that? And she goes, what happens every single year? You're just never here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, oh, trees. I mean, I got, you know, living in North Carolina, you know, the, the leaves in the fall, we actually have a fall season, you know, the leaves fall off. And then all of a sudden in the spring, they come back. I go, I, I didn't realize that tree was that full or our bushes were that that high. I mean, it, it's, uh, it's kind of cool to see. It's a lot different. Who wants baseball season more? You? or your wife? Uh, I think my dog does. I, uh, the other day, uh, the wife and I, uh, we had a project of cleaning out the garage. And normally, you know, wherever we go, the dog goes. And this dude, our dog Coco, he slept for three hours. This guy said, thank God I get some peace and quiet for three hours. But, you know, he's getting a lot of walks each and every day. Uh, I, and I know, I know he would miss me when I leave, but he's probably right now saying, Oh, just give me some free time. <laughs> now, you know how much I respect you as a pitching coach, as a man that I think is as good as anybody mentally with the game and baseball. But I do have to say, when I found out some information, it really disappointed me. The fact that here you are the big left-hander that you gave up the first hit to a guy that hadn't played baseball since he was 17 years old. How could you be the first guy to give up a hit to a basketball player? Well, well, let's just remember 
this was minor league spring training camp. So he'd already been in big league camp and got his hits in big league camp. This is when he got sent down to the minor leagues where I was and got the hit, you know? Uh, well, I arguably uh, gave up a hit to the greatest uh, player of all time in bat in the NBA. Maybe I, I consider Michael Jordan, one of the top two basketball players ever, but the best player ever in the NBA. So uh, there's a little catch to that one. But uh, I consider him probably one of the greatest athletes of all time. This guy's a good golfer, uh, obviously the greatest NBA basketball player of all time. And, uh, you know, he was a pretty good baseball player too now. Uh, I found out that he hit 250 in the second half in double A, which is, is remarkable for, for a guy who hadn't played professional baseball at all. In his first full season, he hits 250 in the second half in double A. Uh, you know, it, for me, you know, I went after him with all fastballs. He got a little base hit to the right side. And then, but, you know, the story doesn't tell you. I, I mixed up all my pitches the next at bat and struck him out. So. What was that like? I mean, he's Michael Jordan. He's just won. I mean, we watched him win the national championship in, in college. He's coming off winning three straight NBA titles. He's Gatorade, he's Nike, he's Michael Jordan, he's a he's a he's a star. I mean, the dream team had already happened, and all of a sudden you're now playing against him. What what were you guys saying back then when you're like, wow, we're playing against Michael Jordan? Well, you know, the 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 funny thing is, you know, I was working out at my high school in the offseason and I was teasing all the guys that uh that worked out there we had a lot of pros that worked out at my high school and obviously the kids on the high school team I'm like oh man I'm I'm a I'm gonna drop this guy I'm, I'm gonna bring one up and in and, and get him dirty a little bit and introduce him to, to pro baseball and, you know that's kind of your your little bit of a trash talk and then uh you know when he got in the box I was like nope nope this is this is compete time I'm gonna throw them all fastballs but, you know, we found out, uh, you know, we heard he was uh, optioned from the big league camp to minor league camp. And we were playing the White Sox that day. And then we heard uh, he got optioned to double A. But I was on the A-ball roster. And the A-ball roster, we were traveling to Ed Smith's uh, stadium uh, to play the White Sox uh, A-ball teams. And so assuming, you know, he was in double A, he was going to travel to our complex with the Orioles. But then it comes to find out they didn't want him on the road because of the security issues of him being Michael Jordan. So he stayed behind and played in the A-ball game. And, um, you know, just an incredible specimen and athlete. A lot of respect for that guy. Yeah, I mean, Sandy Alderson said on this program, he offered him a big league spot with the Oakland A's. And Sandy understands it's about entertainment, and obviously Michael wouldn't have been ready, but they would have offered him to play for the A's, and he would have got one of the 25-man 20, roster spots. But I think Michael was smart enough to know, if I go straight to the big leagues, I'm going to get embarrassed. And you're going to get embarrassed on a national stage. And I, I just I don't see a guy who was Zach successful on the national stage then showing up and just absolutely failing on the national stage. I just, I, that would have been a bad move for him. The, well, if you, if you watch the, uh, the, the last dance, um, I think Michael Jordan at some point in time would have figured some stuff out. I mean, that's what the greatest athletes in the world do. Uh, this guy would have, uh, you know, probably struggled in the big leagues early if they, if they were fortunate to play him enough 
he would have figured it out. If you look at his double-A numbers and hitting 250 in the second half, I think he would have, you know, maybe not been a, an everyday guy in the big leagues right out of the shoot, obviously. But I think, you know, towards maybe if he was committed to play in a couple more years, maybe by year two or three, this guy could have been playing every day for a few years. Uh, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't hold it against him that he would have been a, a failure immediately. I, I just think that uh, it would have taken him some time, but you know, this guy's a heck of a golfer and this guy, he would have figured it out. And sometimes you got to learn the job at the highest level. So I know that you're always trying to learn and you're always trying to get better so you can help your pitchers. During this layoff, what have you been doing? What have you been doing a deep dive on to get better? Well, I've done a lot of researching on movements and, and body movements and uh, certain things that, uh, you know, obviously if, if we don't move our bodies correctly, you know, if you have a, a good solid pitching delivery, generally you're going to uh, maximize your velocity and your command. If you have a bad delivery, uh, it's a lot tougher for you to control the baseball. So if we can control the controllables, which could be our delivery, which makes it in return better for us to, to peak out with our velocity, stay healthy, and do what major league pitchers do, and that's being able to command both sides of the plate. So, you know, I, I've, I've looked at a lot of things in, in pitching movements. Um, some have, uh, you know, affirmed to me you know what i've already known and i've learned a few things out of it so uh you know i think it's just a, a a thing that i've always done you know each and every year you're always looking at certain uh people and certain things whether they're on the internet or within the group that i trust and and most of it is you know when i'm forming a a, a pitching plan i'm taking the organization's data and I'm taking advice from, you know, close-knit people, 10, 15 guys that I really trust about pitching and hitting because I want to hear the hitting side of it. And then I'm formulating my opinions and my game plan. But I think you have to have new eyes also. you got to be able to see different data and say, you know what, how can I incorporate this data into our, our, da our daily plan? Or how uh, should I just erase some of this data because there's a lot of data out there but it, it's you know what we what we combined collectively as a group as an organization and what we want to get out of our players and combining the best data that we feel or our data um, is the way that we can help maximize our pitchers so pitching is about messing with the hitters timing right and and we have talked about that in the past but I want to ask you, what's more important in modern-day baseball, velocity or command? Well, obviously, you, you got to be able to command the baseball. I mean, if you're throwing 97, 98, and they're not strikes, you can't even pitch. You can't even be on the team, you know. I mean, you look at a lot of guys that are in college. They throw 96, 97. They don't pitch much on their team, some of them, because they can't throw strikes. But at the end of the day, they do get drafted because then, you know, we think that, you know, our egos as coaches and player development, we can fix this guy. And we want an opportunity to fix a guy who's got a gift and that's a good arm. But that doesn't necessarily mean uh, that he's going to be a good pitcher. I mean, 
you talked about your golf game off camera a little bit earlier and your approach shots. You know, you can drive for show, but that second approach shot, the good golfers in golf, in my understanding, leave themselves shorter putts than the guys that leave themselves longer putts. So the guys who are more consistent, right, at throwing strikes are going to be better than the guys that just throw hard because you're right. Uh, hitting is timing and pitching is disruption of timing. Big league hitters, they don't care how hard you throw. They really don't. If they get in the box and they see you over the course of time and they know what your velocity is, then that, is, that's a, that becomes a mute point. Be, that, now it's about, okay, can he throw strikes? Can he put it where it wants? And does he have something to change speeds on me? And does he have a wipeout breaking ball? Once you put those three things in the mind of the hitter, all right, this guy can throw change-ups. This guy's got a nasty breaker. He moves his fastball around. He doesn't just live down and away. You know, I've always heard the term, um, you can lead the horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Well, I guarantee it, the more times you lead that horse to water, that horse is going to start drinking. He's not going to just go, oh, there's water. Uh, you know, I'm dying of thirst. I'm not going to drink this. So he's going to drink it. So, um, you know, at the end of the day, the big league pitchers, you know, have the ability to command the baseball and, and have a, a, a pitch that can disrupt your timing and wipe you out with a breaking ball. But if you come in and just throw a 98 with no command, or if you just throw 98 in the strike zone, uh, more times than not, you know, one, you're going to might be a reliever if you can't flip lineups and, and use some other pitches. So, you know, I've heard some pitching coaches say, you know, let's just uh, throw your best pitch the most. Uh, and they don't care if it's 60% sliders. Well, you know, everything, you know, may work off the fastball. I, I still believe that everything works off the fastball. Doesn't necessarily mean you have to throw the fastball the most, but when you do, that fastball has to be efficient enough to keep the hitters honest and off your breaking stuff. See, I would have never asked that question years ago, but the reason I did is because the Bob Tewksbury's of the world, they don't exist anymore. Guys that could throw 86 miles an hour and put it everywhere they want. As you mentioned, if you throw 96, you may not even play on your college team, but you're going to get drafted. Velocity has become such a big part of the game. That's why I asked that question because, you know, the day, you know, we used to call guys thumbers. We don't see those guys anymore. Well, you know, there's a, there's a catch-22 going on in the game right now. If, if you look at a, a kid who wants to get drafted, and, you know, some people will say, you know, stop thinking about velocity, stop thinking about velocity. But in reality, if you're a kid and you, you're going to a tryout camp and you're throwing 91, 92, maybe even a 93, the scouts will just say, you know, you're just like anybody else. How can you pitch? And if they look up your pitching numbers and they're not any good, then they, they don't need you. But if you if you come into this tryout camp and you're throwing sixes and 97 and they look up your numbers and then they go, uh, oh, well, he hasn't pitched very good. But if we do sign him, do we believe in the Oakland A's player development and, and Gil Patterson and the staff in developing young pitchers? And yes, we do. You know, let's give that arm a chance. And that's where the that's where the, the catch 22 comes in with the velocity. Because, um, you know, sometimes velocity is hard to teach, you know, and people do think they can teach velocity. Uh, but look, uh, I've talked about, 
the effective velocity enhancement for me. Uh, if you're, if your nutrition is very important, if you're putting bad gas in a car, don't expect to win that NASCAR race by putting bad gas in the car. So nutrition is number one, in my opinion, for importance for, for, um, not only for, to help you build your strength, but also aid in your recovery. Then you got, uh, flexibility. Are you flexible? Can you put yourselves in these high profile positions that these pitchers have to put themselves in crash in the upper half over the lower half, you know, the best pitchers in, in baseball, they get up to speed and force early and they crash early. You know what I'm saying? That they, they have that ability to, th to throw the brakes on earlier to create velocity. Uh, then you've got, you know, strength and conditioning. Then you've got mental toughness. Are you mentally tough? And, and then you got, you know, can you sync up your pitching mechanics? If you can just do all this first, you don't need to do the plyo balls or the heavy ball stuff yet. You know, just get yourself to where you're, you're, you're moving functionally correct. Have good movements. And if you don't move good, then, you know, it's hard to, you know, give a guy a, a plyo ball or a weighted ball and say, you know what, you don't move very good in your pitching mechanics. Let's give you something heavier, you know. So, you know, a lot of these guys build velocity, in my opinion, the wrong way. There's certain ways you can do it uh, and be safe and efficient. But movement is key. If you if you don't have good movements generally, now these are all guidelines. You can uh, I, I think it's Jim Furyk on tour has that big steep high swing, and yeah. people say, oh well, you know, you know he doesn't have a great swing. He's a heck of a golfer. So you know all these things are just guidelines that you're looking at, and most of most of it is you're looking at it when you have a non-successful pitcher. How can I get this guy to be successful? What type of changes can we make? You know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again and expecting a different result. You get a guy with a five and a half ERA over and over again. At some point in time, you want to make some changes. And that's why I've talked about Lazardo uh, a lot. You know, what are you going to do with Lazardo? I'm not going to do much with Lazardo until he fails. You know, this guy's got unbelievable stuff and, and hopefully he doesn't fail. But at some point in time, there's going to be some teaching it's just you know subtle teachings now and, and then when we need to address it or if we need to address it then that's when you start making adjustments but the first thing that you know these guys got to do is they got to eat right they got to be flexible and they got to have good functional movements to be able to throw at a high rate of speed and it, and and that's important but that doesn't townie uh, that doesn't mean you're going to be any good either because then <laughs> then the the whole game of pitching comes in you know, you, you got your golf game going pretty good now, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's let's line up the tee box and the hole with 50, 15,000 people. And let's see how good – and Tiger Woods standing next to you. How good of a golfer are you going to be that day? That's pressure. And, and nobody can quantify it, and so they don't seem to care about it. But and, – and, you know, when I talk to you about uh, – you know, pitchers have to get out on that big league field, you know, over the course of the time you're on that tee box with Tiger Woods and 15,000 people lining a hole. You know, you would think within a year and a half or two years or 25, 30 tournaments, you're going to start feeling more confident and not telling that guy 30 yards down, Hey, scoot over, man. I'm afraid I'm going to shank this one. <laughs> you're going to, it's going to be easier for you to breathe and be able to hit the shot. And that's what happens with guys 
in the big leagues. Well, how come he's not pitching good? Well, he's this guy hasn't gotten to the point where he feels comfortable on a big league field in one of in front of all these fans. So there's a lot of intangibles that go into it. If you can't quantify it, there's still intangibles that happen. And and that's the one thing that that you look at as well. Yeah, I say it all the time on the pre and post game show and on this show. There are guys that go out to win and there are guys that are going out to survive. Where are you? The young guys traditionally are going out there just to survive versus the killers who go out there and they go out to win. Let's end on this. You know, so well, we well, I, I got a good I got a good point for you on here, All too. Right. When uh, I was the pitching coordinator and we we had mini camp for all the new pitchers, I would tell the guys some of you were drafted because the organization thinks you're really good. Some of you guys were drafted because the organization thinks we can get you to be really good. There's a difference, you know. You know, a lot of guys come and they're the big fish in the small pond, and then all of a sudden they're the the little fish in the big pond. And taking ownership of your career and who you are, and identifying, you know, we have to identify. Hey, you're here because you throw 97, 98, but the ultimate goal for you is to throw more strikes and be able to learn how to pitch where this guy we drafted in the first and second round, he's already able to do that. He knows how to do that. So once the pitchers take ownership of their careers and responsibilities of who they are and what they can do, it maximizes their potential, in my opinion, a little bit faster. Let's end on this. I think the good news of a shortened season, and we talked about this at spring training, is now we're not going to have to talk about innings limits with these young pitchers when you look at Jesus and you look at AJ. You know, we're not going to have to baby. It's just going to be take the ball every five days, right? Well, you know, I think I think for me, rest and recovery is always important. I never really worry about the innings that are ahead as long as guys are getting their rest and recovery as they're going into each and every outing. You know, if you're overworking a guy in one outing, you may want to cut back in the next outing. But if these guys are, are going through the process of a five-day rotation, uh, we're getting to them uh, to their bullpens fresh. There might be times where we skip bullpens. But every if we're getting guys to the game mound fresh, I think you just you just go with it and and just listen to each other and the communication of how the pitchers are feeling. Obviously, if they're not feeling at their best, that might be a day you cut them back a little bit, either in the bullpen or during the game. Say, you know, those are the important things. But I want our guys to be out there fresh. I am not cutting this hair until I see you. Well, uh, Tony, I gave you I, – I tried to give you a bounce pass on my Michael Jordan comment about him being the best NBA player of all time, but one of the top two basketball players, in my opinion, in the history of the world. And you didn't ask me who the best – who the second guy is. You better be saying Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Nope, I'm going to say Len Bias. Len Bias. All right, I got, all right. I got to see Len Bias play. I was a huge Terp fan growing up. Uh, I got to see Len Bias play uh, a game in high school, and I followed him at College Park, you know, and uh, Coalfield House, Lefty Drizel. And I think Len Bias uh, would have been the, the second coming of Michael Jordan. He would have given 
MJ a great run. It would have been an unbelievable time in the NBA with Lenny Bias and Michael Jordan. What's the number one thing you do in basketball? Uh, I'm a score on you. Uh, who put that <laughs> ball in the hoop more than anybody in the history of the game? Kareem. Uh, who won three straight? Because the freshman couldn't play. Who won three straight national titles at UCLA? Uh, a different guy, Lou Alcindor. Uh, who won a championship with the Milwaukee Bucks and the Lakers? Two hey, I'm franchises. Not, hey, I'm not going to sleep. I'm not going to sleep on winners. Uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, ultimate winner. Uh, I mean, a ton of uh, championship rings. But how about Yogi Berra uh, putting those World Series rings, what, on every finger he's got? And who, nobody – Yogi. Who, who fought Bruce Lee in the movies? Well, the, the Washington <laughs> Generals. <laughs> Kareem is the man. I, I yeah, He's one of the no, only – I'm with you here. Um, I'm with you here. You know, when, when I look at athletes and evaluate athletes, I'm, I'm looking at a one-on-one. -on -one. You know, who? that's why I mean the best basketball player. Maybe not a guy who was the best leader on a basketball team. I think, you know, sometimes, you know, I look at uh, MVPs in baseball. And there's, there's, there's the MVP who's the most valuable player. But then there's also should be award of the best player because, you know, we've seen guys win the MVP on teams that don't even make the playoffs. And in my opinion, they're, they're probably the best player in the league. But when you come in last place, how valuable really were you to a losing team? So, I mean, there, but we could debate this nonstop. I mean, there's a lot of debate for, for, you know, you love Kareem. I love MJ and Lenny Bias. I love LeBron. I love Kobe. Those were great gifted scorers and players like Kareem. But you're right. You know, that's the beauty of sports and sports talk is we get to, to um, you know, Babe Ruth. This dude not only was a hitter, this guy was a pitcher too. And he doesn't get, you know, I think he's losing his luster as the best player in the history of Major League Baseball. But if you look at it, this guy's a two-way player. This guy's unbelievable. He was a really good pitcher and obviously a really good hitter. So there's my dog. He, he's got to get on the show. But, uh, uh, you know, if you look at Babe Ruth, man, this guy's a two-way player. That's unbelievable to me. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of great Major League Baseball players. Uh, you know, Barry Bonds, probably the greatest home run hitter of all times, uh, the most feared hitter with all the intentional walks. Uh, and that's the beauty of being able to debate sports. Emo, you're the best. We miss you. Be safe. And hopefully we'll see you soon. And, and I, I want to keep stirring the pot with you. Always good to catch up with Emo. How about Brad Ziegler? We haven't talked to him in a while as he's had some comments about the upcoming season. And, of course, he's a, a collector of so many different things when you look at memorabilia Major League Baseball. Here is the former Submariner, Brad Ziegler. Hey, it's good to see you. How are you? It's been a while. No kidding. Uh, it's it's it has been a while, but um, it's good to to be in a situation to talk a little baseball. There hadn't been a whole lot of that going on lately. Um, How's the nationwide. family? Oh, doing well. Doing well. The kids were amazing through the the whole homeschooling process, and um, you know, it was that was definitely something I never thought I'd be a kindergarten teacher. Um, but but here I am. 
you know, so interesting the way we do these interviews, uh, whether we do them by phone or we do it through Google Meet and where we're able to see you. A lot of people don't know that you're a collector and I can see all these baseballs (laughs) behind you. Uh, I remember years ago we had the conversation about all the baseball cards that you have. I mean, you love the game of baseball and you love being a collector. Yeah, I, you know, it's, I think I appreciate the history of the game really well. And so that's something that, um, you know, all, almost all the stuff I collect is Hall of Famers. That I've got a few balls. Um, so there's what, eight, eight, nine rows of, of signed balls behind me on the wall. And I think the middle four rows are all Hall of Famers. And then all the rest of them are just stars, people that casual fans would have heard of. Um, or guys that I played in the World Baseball Classic with, um, that kind of thing. And um, it's just, you know, it's just something, you know, I've always appreciated the history of the game. And and I always have, I've been a collector since I was a kid. And um, obviously, uh, my big league career allowed me to to do a little more than I could do when I was in elementary school. You know, there there's a lot of people who come to the big leagues and they struggle. And I always talk about with pitchers, a lot. And we've, uh, Scott Emerson and I just went over this pitching coach for the A's that guys come up and they just try and survive. And it takes time before you become a guy that goes out to win. Mm-hmm. I think about the start of your career. It was historic. <laughs> it was unbelievable. And we just kept following it going, man, he hasn't given up a run. Then he hasn't given up a run. Next thing you know, it's like best start of, of, of a reliever's career in the American league. And then you tie the all time scoreless streak for a reliever. Take us back. You come up, and then all of a sudden, it's historic stuff. Yeah, it was. it's funny because I, I still, looking back, I still really feel like I really didn't know what I was doing. I'd only been throwing submarine for about, uh, you know, a year at that point, or, you know, prior to the beginning of that season. Um, I know I pitched a couple months in the minor leagues that year, but basically a, a year and a half at most. And I was still having to work on my delivery every single day with Ron Romanic down in the bullpen. Just, we, we'd use the rag ball, the, you know, basically a T-ball, um, go down there and and just throw and throw and throw and go through that delivery until the I had to get it to the point where I wasn't thinking about the delivery on the mound. And even in the midst of that stretch, we were out working every day just trying to to fine tune some stuff. And and I really I didn't you know it, it, was, it was 39 innings and I I might have had maybe 18 or 20 strikeouts in that time. Um, you know that that wasn't my game. I was just trying to get the ball on the ground and and we had a really good defensive infield. You know it was. It was, you know, Derek Barton at first and Xavi at third and Crosby at short and Mark Ellis at second. I mean, there's gold gloves all over the place there. And Ellis should have won a gold glove. Um, and it's it was just a, a kind of a perfect storm of a really good defensive infield behind me and and me being new to the league. And guys, you know, I, I think maybe had a little trouble adjusting to my style of throwing because there just weren't that many of us back then. You know, the crazy thing is when you make a change as a hitter, you can hit all day long in the cage and work on it. You can soft toss, you can hit off a tee, you, 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 can, you, can, you, know, you can go in and, and, and take hacks in the cage. But as a pitcher, there's only so much you, there's only so many times you can throw before you're going to hurt yourself. So what was that like? You know, you got to manage how, you got to manage your arm when you're going through a process like that. Yeah, for sure. And you know, fortunately, I, I had a build. I, you know, I'm not saying I never got sore or anything, but when you're a long, lanky build, it's a lot different than a muscle-bound guy where the, the bigger, stronger guys will fight muscle soreness a lot more than I did. I didn't have a lot of muscle, uh, you know, in my arm and shoulder. 
Um, and that led to me being able to pitch frequently, um, you know, to maybe even just to throw the way that I did. I, th- I think there's a lot of guys who have tried it that, that couldn't do it. So it, it was a challenging. I'm not going to say it wasn't. Um, and especially they wanted, there were times I, I feel like I was out there three, four, five days in a row. Um, I know there were games that I pitched three innings in that that wasn't something I had done at all since I had been a starter. And um, it was just, you know, it, but when you're a rookie in the big leagues, you don't want to tell anybody no. They're like, hey, let's go work on your delivery. Or, hey, you're, you know, you're, go get loose. You're about to go in the game. It doesn't matter at that point. Like, they, if you, it's, you get that, that mindset of like, if I tell them I'm, you know, I'm hurting and I can't go today, then they, well, are they going to send me down tomorrow? You know, that kind of thing. And, um, you know, looking back on it now, I probably would have handled it a little differently. Um, if I, you know, I just, just had the guts to speak up a little bit, but I just, I wanted to get better and I wanted to do whatever it took to stay there. And and that was the biggest thing for me. It just, you know, I, I can't control if they want to send me down or, or whatever, but I want to make that a tough decision for them at a minimum. So when you, I mean, it's, it's a last ditch effort, right? When you say I, I'm going to drop down, I've never done this before. When you first make that decision and you start doing it, how wild were you? Where, where was the ball going out of your hand when you first tried this? So, so I will say first, and, and this is something that was really important to this process. I didn't want to switch when they asked me to switch and they assured me that this was not a last ditch thing for me. They, that if, if it didn't work out or if I decided I didn't want to do this after a uh, after a point, they wanted to keep me in their system as an overhand starter, you know, and, and continue pitching the way I was, maybe move me to the bullpen uh, to see if I get a velo, a velo spike or something. But they wanted me no matter what. And that meant a lot to me because then I could, I still always ha- kind of had a backup plan still. It wasn't that I was, I had to be locked into this. Um, that said, the the mindset for me was, so the, the first two weeks that I was learning the delivery down at Instructional League, I mean, I'm down there with a bunch of 17, 18, 19 year old kids. And I was like 26 when I was, you know, learning this stuff. And the first two weeks, I did not touch a baseball other than I played overhand catch like normal. But when I was going through my delivery, it was all dry. It was all without a ball, just trying to get the repetition down. So when they finally gave me a ball, it wasn't like, hey, you've never done this before. Try to try to throw this way. It was different with a ball in my hand. But even when I was a starter, I had I had mixed arm slots a little bit. I had, you know, John Smoltz was was probably the guy that I, I patterned myself after the most growing up and. He, you know, he would drop down sidearm occasionally and and stuff. And so when he did it, I was like, you know what? I can try that. And in re- in reality, I think I learned a way to throw the way that I ended up throwing in wiffle ball growing up because you change arm slots all the time in wiffle ball because it's it's whatever you can to make the guy not not hit it. And and so my arm was just kind of used to that. And I I think some of that, you know, when they saw me mixing arm slots as a starter, they they thought, hey, maybe this guy could do this full time. And um, you know, fortunately, it, it worked out. And think you then become a closer. <laughs> yeah, that was definitely not the plan. Um, you know, they 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 never looked at me as this is a guy we want to close. It was, you know, it, it was always and even after my days in Oakland, when I was in Arizona, when I was in Boston, it was always because either someone struggled or someone got hurt. Um, you know, it was, you know, Houston struggled a little bit in, in 2008. Um, I came in and started closing. You know, I started the year in 2009 as the closer, and I got sick. I don't. I got the H1N1 virus, and Andrew Bailey 
took over and became the American League Rookie of the Year. And and at that point, I just assumed, like, I'm probably never going to close again. I'm okay with that. Went to Arizona, and, you know, one year J.J. Putt started struggling. Then one year Heath Bell started struggling. One year Addison Reed started struggling. I uh, went to Boston. Um, Craig Kimbrell went on the DL. It was it was it was just like this this mix of all these proven closers. Something had to happen to them, but I I never looked at the ninth inning as any differently than any other inning. I I've got to get out, so it doesn't matter what the inning, what the situation. Um, you know, the only difference is in the ninth inning, teams will pinch hit and throw throw guys at me in ways that they wouldn't do in the seventh inning because. In the ninth inning, you just got to extend the game, and you figure out your defense later. But it, you don't pinch it a, you know, a, a, your your backup catcher for your center fielder in the seventh inning of a game, um, just to get a matchup. They're they're trying to do that, um, you know, only as a last resort. And so, um, you know, I did I did what I could to to keep the same mindset and just go out and get ground balls. You know, I I feel like I didn't know that you had H one N one, and I feel like <laughs> we now know more about viruses than ever before because of COVID-19. I, you know, I didn't know much about SARS. Uh, what was that like having that virus and how'd you get over it? Uh, it was rough. Um, so we were down in Texas, hot, humid day. I think it was in May. Um, and we had a day game that day and I woke up with a high fever. It was like 105, 105 and a half. It was, I just remember being like completely miserable. Um, they said, don't come to the field. Um, they, so then we, after the game was over, we had a flight to Seattle and they, they like quarantined me on the flight. Like no one could be within a certain distance from me and flight attendants wouldn't even like, they were like throwing me bottles of water, you know, like here, this is, this is the only way we're serving you. Cause they were told to stay away. Um, when we got to Seattle, I went to see the doctor there and that's when they did the blood test. And it was like, you know, this random virus that, um, I didn't know much about, and at the time they called it the the swine flu or something. And um, but it it uh, you know I after it, fortunately that one had a very short shelf life of of you know the 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 length of time it lasted, the length of time you were contagious, how long you had the symptoms. Um, for me, I was able to fight it off fairly quickly, and and but by the time I came back, it, you know Bailey had been pitching well before that. And they gave him the reins and he never let it go after that. And and I'm, you know, I was glad for him that he, you know, got a chance to to go out and win that rookie of the year. Yeah. And, and uh, of course, now a pitching coach himself. So it's going to be fun to watch his career continue. Uh, but we need to get baseball back on the field. I know you've made comments recently about it. And how do you think we get this thing going again? Because if NASCAR's going, PJ Tour starting up on the 11th, we've got. Football says they're going to be a go. Basketball, hockey, they're going to have their playoffs. If they're all playing and we're not, that's going to be a real bad look. Yeah, and and what's interesting is I haven't heard a single thing in any of the other sports about the owners trying to get the players to take less money on the chance that there will be no fans or less fans in the in the stadiums. And you're hearing that in baseball, and that that you know that's the big hangup. The players are willing to to do a lot of other stuff. But they're not willing to to take less money per game because you know as a as a from a historical side of things, this union has fought hard for guaranteed contracts, and to give anything back from that perspective looks like a loss from to the players. And and there is a constant fear that anything we give back to the owners will be used in in future collective bargaining agreements because they know at least at some point, even in a time of crisis, that there's a willingness to. 
And the player said, look, we're not asking you to pay our full salary. We just want the prorated amount. They've agreed to that. And the owners are basically just saying, no, we're going to lose too much money doing this. So we'll play a 50 game season. And that's, you know, that's their choice because they're going to end up losing a whole lot more money than that down the road when 2021 fans don't come back in the, you know, the way that they should, but they still got to play, pay the players their full amount. And they're, you know, they're, to me, they're digging their own grave at this point and, and it's going to be a tough grave to get out of once they're laying in it. Yeah. I've mentioned on this show, if you don't play, that means you've been gone for 18 months and through all these, you know, when there's 41 million people unemployed and we're not playing because of money and everybody else is playing. And I don't know what the sport will look like when you come back in 18 months. Yeah. And, and not only that, but who's to say that it doesn't, you know, it doesn't potentially happen at the beginning of next year. I mean, we don't know if there's going to be a second wave of this at some point and, um, you know, it's, it's, there's just a lot of unknown, but the bottom line is the players want to play. There's not a doubt about that. They're willing, they're all working out. They're ready to go. And, and, you know, everybody talked about a, if they wanted a July 1st start, they needed to be, you know, in their, their pseudo spring training come mid June. And the players realize that they know that if a, an agreement is signed, they basically had to pack up and leave in a week and they're all in shape. They're all ready to go. So it's, it's just a matter of the owners saying, you know, deciding, are they going to, you know, basically take losses in the short term to ensure the the long term security of the game, um, keeping fans around, that kind of thing? Because they can do that. They could have some short term losses that, you know, from the player's perspective, I think they feel like those the losses that have been made public are very overstated. Um, but they're if they're willing to take this short term loss, get the game going again knowing that fans are going to come back in droves in 2021 and TV TV ratings will be record high if they can get going again, then to, to me, it's it's just a matter of weighing pros and cons. But from the player's perspective, nothing changes. Like just because there's not fans out there doesn't mean you don't play the game as hard. It doesn't mean you don't work as hard. It doesn't mean you don't have, you know, plus they're, they're allowing themselves to go into a locker room secluded with a bunch of other people who they don't know who they've been in contact with. And, and so there's some health risks involved with it too. If I'm the players, I don't blame them. I, I don't, I don't budge one inch when it comes to, to my, you know, the pay that I signed up for my, from my perspective, I'm not doing anything different. It's the owner's job and, and to, to make money on the business side of things. It's not the player's job. So I got a really good friend, Mike, who lives in Kansas City. He's still sky high about the Chiefs winning the Super Bowl. <laughs> I, I, I bet you you got to be the exact same. Finally in your lifetime, you're not talking about Lenny Dawson and Hank Stram winning the Super Bowl. Finally, your Kansas City Chiefs that you grew up with finally get it done. Yeah, it was – man, that was special. It, you know, the way this city – this is a great sports town. They When the Royals won in 2015, I was here – you know, I had been – I was in Arizona but had been beat out. Um, we didn't make the playoffs that year. I came back here, got to spend all of October here uh, while the Royals were going through the World Series march. And the way the city rallies around a team that, that's successful is just – it's so fun to watch. And, man, the, you know, everybody's rabid Chiefs fans here. It's it's, it's pretty crazy. They, um, they do a lot of uh, neat stuff for the team, and the players are great with the community. Um, and you talked about a, a memor- my memorabilia collection. This was my latest purchase. I bought a replica trophy of the Lombardi <laughs> trophy. <laughs> to put in my bar area that's that's uh, you know engraved and and it's got the score of the game and everything on it basically looks just like the real thing and um, it showed up two days ago so I was I was pretty pumped because I you know 
Um, and, and, you know, with Patrick Mahomes' connection to, to baseball, with LaTroy Hawkins being his godfather, you know, obviously Pat Mahomes played, um, you know, for the Twins a long time ago, Twins and Mets. And um, I've known LaTroy ever since my days on Team USA in 2009. We're good friends. He's a – LaTroy's a Kansas Jayhawks fan, uh, just like me. And and so we, um, we've we been connected for a long time. And and he told me a long time ago about Patrick. He's like, yeah, man, my other, my other godson is, is special talent and – and, you know, for him to end up in Kansas City just made it that much better. Hey, it's great to see you. It's great to hear your voice. I know A's fans love it. Uh, good luck with Little League. I know it's starting up back where you guys are. And uh, uh, we'll be in touch. Let's do this again soon. Sounds great. Thanks a lot, Chris. You know, it was good seeing him. Obviously, with our Google Meets, we're able to see him while we're doing the interview. And it's been a while. And uh, obviously, he's doing well there in Kansas City. We also got a chance to hook up with former A's right-hander Steve McCaddy, who's now with the White Sox, but we're talking about an article that was in The Athletic about the A's in the early 80s and the innings and the appearances that these guys had back in the day. Here is Steve McCaddy from his backyard in Michigan. Steve, thank you so much for coming on A's Cast Live. It's great to hear your voice. Well, it's, it's really nice to be on. I, I appreciate it. Uh, good to be able to talk to some people out in the Bay Area. One of my favorite, if not my favorite place in the world, and um, certainly miss being out there. You know, they re- recently the Athletic did a deep dive on your guys' pitching staff back in the day, and uh-huh. it, it's truly amazing if you're a, if you're a young baseball fan and, and you're reading about what you got the five aces. My, I mean, the complete games, the innings pitched. What a different time it was back then to where we are today. <laughs> Yeah, it is. And I tell everybody, you know, I haven't been in the game a long time and still having gone to spring training and everybody, you know, when they introduce the staff, they get up and say things about uh, the complete games and all that stuff. And I sit there and say, oh, my God, you know, that's really good. But I'm glad Ferguson Jenkins and guys like that aren't sitting in this room with me right now because what we did doesn't sound like it was as much as they did. But, uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. We did a lot of things and probably a lot of uh, all the analytics and everything they're trying to do to protect everybody in this game is probably our fault. So when you look back at that time, you know, it's like you took the ball and you're you're not thinking that someone's warming up in the bullpen in the sixth inning, the seventh inning. Tell me just what that mindset was for all you guys. Well, Again, you're right. It was a different time in the era. You know, everybody, you, when you started, it was like, okay, you're going to pitch nine innings. That was the goal. We didn't have pitch counts, although, you know, the art bottle would keep a clicker. We knew how many pitches we threw, but your your job was to go nine innings, you, to get a win for the club. Yeah, We all figured that even if you lost, if you were in the game for nine innings, you had to have done something and kept the, the team in the game. But you know, when we were at home, it was nine, and you you wanted to, that, that's what you were brought up to do. That's what you were trained to do in the minor leagues. You know, we've gone through uh, all the 70s teams with the A's, the great teams uh, that won the World Series, 72, 73, 74, and how the teams were wild, you know. You're taking on the Reds in 72. It's the Hares versus the Squares. It, it was a pretty <laughs> fun group. And then the A's end up having some really bad teams. And then here you guys start coming up here in the late 70s and the early 80s. And you got Billy Martin and you're winning again. And it's a little crazy again. 
Oh yeah, I was. Uh, you know, I was in the minor leagues when they started winning uh, the World Series. I said I got there in '72 or '73, so that's just the way we were trained. You know, we knew those guys up there were wild. They were different. They had mustaches. In the minor leagues, we grew mustaches, or we did the best we could. Uh, and uh, you know, we, I guess it was just brought brought up that way to be the you know the wild swinging A's and just have that mentality and. Then in the middle part there, when they started having free agency and uh, some players left, it was tough with Charlie because, you know, he didn't have the money and not able to uh, pay the big bucks. And uh, eventually he got Billy to come in and uh, a bunch of young guys that had done well enough or whether it was by attrition to the big leagues, got an opportunity to get there. And with his attitude and, and then, you, you know, everybody talks about us, but you got to remember we threw Ricky Henderson in the outfield, Dwayne Murphy. Tony Armas, we had journeyman players all over the place, and Billy's attitude was, you know, take no prisoners, and and we loved it. It was it was a blast. You know, I think about Billy Martin, and what a, what a baseball career. Uh, just, I mean, dysfunctional at times, mixed in with greatness. What was it like playing for him? It was uh, it was a blast. Uh, the first year was really tough. It was tougher, uh, you know. For you know, Billy had this thing. If he knew who you were, he liked veteran guys. So he was familiar with Rick Lankford and Keo and and Norris. Seventy uh, nine. I can't remember if he was with the Yankees or not. Uh, uh, I think he was, and then he got fired. But he didn't really see myself or Kingman pitch, and so he was tougher on myself and Brian than the other three guys at first. And he would let them. Uh, go a little bit further in the game than us. Uh, but then uh, eventually he kind of gave in to me and Kinger and just let us go out and, and, and pitch like everybody else. But it was, uh, it could be really tough. He could make life miserable for you, but also it could be just absolutely great too. You know, so much of health in sports is, is a part of your DNA. And, you know, we've had guys who have perfect deliveries. They end up getting hurt. They don't have long careers. You got guys who have other deliveries you may not teach, and they last forever. So part of this article, they, 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 they wonder if the amount of the workload that you guys had, did it really affect you guys all long term? Um, you know, because that's been a question we've been asked for, you know, almost 40 years now, and, uh, and our names always come up. I know that Mike Norris in, uh, what, 82, we had a fight with Seattle, got knocked out on the mound, fell down on the dirt, and he tore a muscle, and when it grew back, it trapped a nerve, and he had problems with his feeling. Uh, Keo slipped on a rainy mound in Baltimore and had a slight tear in his rotator cuff. Uh, Rick Langford, uh, eventually, you know, just throwing a lot of sliders and things, his elbow popped, and myself, I had a I didn't get diagnosed till after I was done. And, and the medical treatment at that time was just starting to get better. And uh, they weren't able to really find that. And I had that corrected after I was done playing. I've never had a problem with it. And uh, Kingman, he hurt his back. <laughs> he was, I guess he was surfing in Hawaii in the offseason between 81 and 82 and hurt his back. Billy and he had always had their difficulties. So in 82, uh, he was, uh, he was in the doghouse again. So, uh, I don't, you know, you, I don't think it was the Yanks. Cause like I say, when you talk about Ferguson Jenkins and Catfish Hunter and all these other guys that, uh, put up these amazing numbers, um, they always threw a lot of innings and, it, you know, didn't seem to bother them. 
them. It was more just of uh, the publicity. And then when something happened, it got blown up. I, I, I know it basically came to a head when Tony Kubek was doing the game of the week and he said Bur- Billy was going to burn us out. And uh, then I think Billy was even more determined to prove uh, Kubek wrong. And uh, But I can't really say it was overuse. Uh, uh, just kind of freaky things happened. And, and uh, that medical treatment now would probably have taken care of everything. But, uh, you know, it's just one of those things. I, I wouldn't do it any differently after seven innings. I could never take myself out of the game. So, uh, you know, I would do it all over again. You know, so so sorry that we we lost Matt last May uh, at the age of sixty four. Just just too young to to go. Very sad that we lost him. Yeah, it was it was terrible. Uh, Steve Lucidips, uh, the clubhouse uh, guy with the A's, had been there forever. I God, I was just thinking how long I've known Boos. It's almost fifty years, and uh, he gave me a call and and we talked and, and finally then I talked to a few other people. I talked to Mike Doris about. Uh, I don't know, a little uh, two weeks ago. And, and uh, you know, Matt was always in great shape. He's just one of those guys where I was always the bigger, sloppier-looking guy, I guess. And, and Matt was always in great shape. And uh, when I heard the news of what happened, it was like, wow, this is just uh, it's really kind of it's shocking. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm going to miss him. We had a, you know, he, he was like a brother. We had a lot of good times. We played together, you know, in the minor leagues when he was an infielder still pitched with them in the big leagues. We went to winter ball together. And uh, my wife, Audrey, and I were talking about it down in winter ball, Puerto Rico. Where, God, he was over all the time. We'd always go to We just do it. We did a lot of stuff together. So, have a, you know, when it happened to Matt, it was like, you know, it's, so it's kind of like a shock to your system. Uh, he, it certainly wouldn't have been uh, – been him that I thought it was going to happen to, but uh, it's it's a shame. You know, when Ricky Henderson comes up and you see Ricky, did you know, like, right away, this guy's going to be a star? Oh, yeah. Well, you, you, I mean, yeah, I, I never played. I played when I was in 79. I, went, I was in the AAA a little bit. We were together, and that's the first chance I had to see him. I think he stole 110 bases and the Cal league the year before or whatever. So yeah, we knew it was really good, but, uh, saw him a little bit and then he got to the big leagues. This is, he had so much talent, uh, that he could probably have done whatever he wanted to. If he would have wanted to hit number three or four, he would, he could hit 20 to 30 home runs and drive in over a hundred runs, but just a uniquely talented guy. And you could, you know, you, you knew he was a superstar from, the day you really got a chance to watch him play. You know, you're working for the White Sox now, and they've made uh, some really good moves, have some players who are starting to blossom, have some really young players that are going to come up and be what we think is pretty special. And they've kind of been a chic pick by a lot of people. And we start talking about a short season. I just got a feeling that a short season plays well for teams that, you know, may struggle if you have 162 games. What kind of shot do you give the White Sox in a shortened season? Uh, I definitely give them a, a, a good shot. As far as hitting, it's like it's like anything else in baseball. Uh, if you have pitching, you're going to have a chance. Lucas Cialito, he's really come on strong. Their pitching is, is, is good. 
And as long as they, you know, keep them in games, they're obviously they're going to have a chance because they can flat out hit. I mean, they, they, these young guys that they have, Moncada, um, I mean, and, and the other guys, they're really impressive. So uh, if the pitching can hold up, like anybody, but I would definitely not consider myself after watching these guys as being dark horses. It's just if you have pitching, you got a chance. And the game's going to be completely different now just from the fact that it's going to be more of a sprint and not the marathon. So, and if they expand the rosters and do all the things they're able to do, you're going to see a lot of pitching changes and uh, these guys are going to score some runs, but they, they really have a, a talented, talented club. It, it's really, a, it's really fun to see these kids uh, having matured, uh, getting a year in the big leagues and uh, they're going to be pretty, pretty special. Uh, Robert, uh, this, this kid, Got unbelievable talent, and uh, it, it's it's pretty amazing. Yeah, let's end on this. You know, we think Cleveland is still going to be pretty good, and then my God, all the home runs that the Twins hit, and they add Josh Donaldson. I mean, yep. wow! I, the Central is going to be it's going to be it, it's going to be fascinating to watch this thing play out in a shortened season. Oh, it is. But I mean, you know, White Sox, they got Jimenez, they got Abreu, they got Robert, they got uh, Tim Anderson, who led the league in hitting. And, and uh, they, they they have, I mean, they really have a, a really talented team. And it's been, you know, overshadowed from the fact, kind of like uh, maybe uh, the way we were in, uh, with the A's, uh, all of a sudden, oh, they're all right. And boom, when the pitching came through, because, uh, with Ricky and Murph and those guys, Tony, we were good. But I think hitting-wise, this this club is, you know, offensively a much better club than we were that way. Uh, but uh, just overall through the lineup, but uh, there there's there's really a lot of talent in the White Sox organization. Yeah, it's going to be fun once we get this thing going. So stay safe there in Michigan. We always appreciate the time, and we'll talk to you once we start playing baseball once again. Well, I can't wait to get back, and thanks for giving me a call. It's uh, nice to talk to some people from the Bay Area. From one terrific right-hander for the athletics to another, former All-Star Mike Norris. We caught up with Mike, and boy, what Mike is doing up here in Northern California is still special. Here is Mike Norris. Mike, thank you so much for taking the time. It's great to hear your voice. Thank you, man. I'm glad to be a part of your podcast. Appreciate you inviting me. Well, I think about your great career as an all-star and a two-time gold glove winner and, a, you know, second in the Cy Young Award. I mean, when we, we've been looking back at different periods of 80s baseball, and one of the great pictures is when all of you guys were on Sports Illustrated, the five aces. That was a great time in A's baseball. And it, it truly was. And, uh, you know, I, I'd just like to give a shout-out to – God bless he's not here any longer, but Billy Martin had a great, great, great part in that. You know, they talk about how many, you know, when when I'm looking at your guys' stats and, you know, you're looking at, you had 24 complete games in 1980. You had three, 33 starts, but you completed 24. You were 22 and nine with a 2.53 ERA. We just talked to McCaddy. When you guys took the ball, you weren't looking for the bullpen. You were looking to go all nine. Well, you know, it's kind of uh, it's not uh, a, a knock on the bullpen, 
But I mean, as kids or in the minor leagues, that's what you did. You went completed games. The relief pitcher wasn't really something that was was looked uh, looked upon like it is today. Uh, uh, fortunately, when I made it to the big leagues, we had Raleigh Fingers, and we did have a great bullpen, Paul Lindblad. But you were actually when you took the ball, you expected to go nine innings. You know, the the only problem for you is you showed up one year too late. Uh, you showed up in 1975. It would have been great if you could have showed up in 74 and got that ring. I, I often wonder why was that. <laughs> the good Lord blessed me, but I sure wish you would let me get in a little earlier. I tell you, that would have been great to have a World Series ring to add to my uh, my trophies and glow gloves and things of that nature. And you, wore, and you had the green glove, right? Isn't that correct? Yeah, I was kind of a bit, I guess what they call a hot dog. I guess I was a hot dog in those days. <laughs> <laughs> you know that's a great thing about A's history. When we, you know we talked to Ray Fossey and we talked, we had Reggie Jackson on, and you know a lot of the great players from the seventies, and Charlie Finley's paying him to have long hair and mustaches, and you've got the green glove and Vita Blue. It's just it, it, the the organization in the seventies and the eighties was just so colorful. Well, you know, and that was a tribute to Charlie Finley. You know, he allowed that. And even, you know, he paid him, uh, which wasn't much, but he paid him each of them $100 just to grow mustaches and stuff. So, you know, where other teams had the uniformity of having clean-shaven faces and you had to wear your socks a certain way and things of that nature. So we had none of that. So it was great. And he just let your personalities be what they were. You know, we had Steve McCaddy on recently, and we asked him this question. is some people wonder you guys pitching all those complete games and throw and having so many pitches and so many starts, did that affect you long-term? He said, no, that injuries, they were random injuries that, that, that your five got that led to some careers being shortened. Is that true? Well, he might have a point, but I have a different opinion and it's all opinionated. So there's the facts on it. We'll, we'll probably never know. But what I attribute it to is uh, I think that was in 1981. Uh, Billy invited an immense amount of minor leaguers into camp, okay, so they could learn the system. And what happened was we left spring training with 11 innings. I think I had 11 or 14 innings and stuff, which was definitely not enough innings to be prepared to start the season. I think that might have been 1982, if, I, if I'm correct. But that led to, you know, to me, that led to, uh, and then, you know, you're still going out trying to complete all the games. And so not being in shape, and then you already had the bulk of 1980 and 81. So I think that's what happened to me. That would make sense because usually you want to be throwing, I mean, even in, even in today's baseball where these guys are not completing games, by the end of spring training, they want to be able to go at least about six innings and you're saying you only had 11 the entire spring. That sounds very dangerous to me. Yeah, it was. It really was. So that's what I attribute my arm trouble to. So then, then maybe there is something to it then, because that's um, – because you were – you. I mean, you're talking about 82, 83. You, you're entering your prime at 27, 28 years old. Exactly. You know, and, and so, you know, uh, we actually had a pitch count. Uh, and so, uh, I think, uh, let me see, uh, myself, Langford and Keo 
averaged under 125 pitches per nine innings. Uh, and so I think that didn't have, you know, the, the complete games now, what could have happened was we did throw, I think all of us through, uh, most of us through a 14-inning game. I know I had four extra inning games, a 10-inning game, 11-inning game, a 12-inning game, and a 14-inning game. So that could have constituted two or two. You know, so like I said, we'll never actually be able to pinpoint exactly what happened. Yeah, and obviously modern medicine is better. The treatment that you guys would have had would have been better if you were pitching today. But I can't imagine what it would be like in baseball today what that conversation with the manager and the meeting after the game, if a manager left a starting pitcher in there for 14 innings, can you imagine what would happen to a manager if he did that in today's baseball? Probably be fired right after the game, most likely. <laughs> but I think we started something that, that ended abruptly because, you know, with the, with the immense salaries these days, you know, uh, you can't just have your start pitcher go down like that and then pretty much, you know, be out for the season or wind up with surgery. And then, you know, usually after surgery, you're really never the same. So uh, the day of the bullpen, I think we brought that in, you know, and uh, I think that's what we can attribute to baseball today. You know, you can really make the case looking at your numbers. I know you finished second in the Cy Young Award, which is a great achievement. But your year at 22 and 9 with a 2.53 ERA, 33 starts, 24 complete games, you threw 284 and a third innings. I mean, you could really make the case that you, you should have been the Cy Young Award winner. Well, I was just about to say that. So thanks for saying that. I appreciate it. Uh, so I wouldn't have to sound so egotistical. But at the same time, yeah, I had Steve Stone did win the Cy Young Award that year, and I beat him in every other category, every category but wins. And, of course, the Baltimore Orioles won the World Series that year, so that, that helped him out a lot as well. So uh, so winning percentage and wins is what he beat me with, and I think he wound up with, I think he was 25-7 and seven or something like that. Um, so, you know, I mean, what can I say? The thing that hurt me most was three riders left me off the ballot totally. And I lost by three votes. So if I have gotten a third place vote, which was equal to one point, or the second place votes, or the first, the second place votes was two points, then the first place vote was worth three points. So had any of them voted correctly, I would have won the Cy Young. So, it, oh it, so that was, and then what was ironical about that was, the riders were from Kansas City, Detroit, and Anaheim. And I think I was like 3-1 and one against Anaheim, maybe 3-0. and oh. And uh, Kansas City, I was 4-1. and one. And Detroit, I pitched a one to nothing shutout against them. So I don't know what that rider was looking at that night. But anyway, that's the way it went. The fact that you were left off those ballots is an absolute travesty. When you look at these numbers, how someone couldn't even vote you third place is a joke. It's a joke. It really was. So they made a mockery out of the whole thing. And it just, you know, I was wondering who, 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 how did they even be able to keep their jobs after that? Because that was just, that was a catastrophe as far as my life is concerned. That would have changed my whole life if had I won that Cy Young Award, without a doubt. Well, we'll always remember what a great year that was in 1980. And, of course, you have your, your baseball school in Northern California. Tell us about your baseball school and how we can help grow it. 
Well, uh, you know, uh, I'm a part of the Black Aces, okay? And the, and the Black Aces are uh, 15 black African-American pitchers who won 20 games or more in a season. And it's an illustrious group, uh, Ferguson Jenkins, Bob Gibson, Don Newcomb, Doc Gooden, people like that. And so after I retired, and then I started looking around, and, and, and the precipitous drop of, of, of African-Americans in the game was alarming to me. And then I thought to myself, wow, will there ever be another twenty game black 20-game winner again? And this led me to start having the baseball um, academy. Now, it took more than that because what I also found out that over 90% of African-American players uh, after two years of being out of the game, you wind up broke. And I was one of those people due to an IRS problem. I had an agent that wasn't paying my taxes, and he put all my money in the insurance policies that he was because he was an insurance man. And so the investments that he made were just tax write-offs. So it was pretty bad. But anyway, so what I wanted to have was a financial literacy course, and then I wanted to have an academia that uh, after-school program where the kids could have a study hall. And then it led to me, right now I have a domestic violence program, teenage domestic violence, I have a mental health program, I have uh, financial literacy, uh, social-emotional, which deals with uh, drugs and alcohol, and, and it's partially a religion course. Uh, and I uh, have a black history course so these kids can learn their heritage and have some pride in themselves and understand where we came from, which right now is going on right now. So it's a big purpose because of what's going on with this pandemic racism that we have going on recently in the world right now. And so it's a, a health and wellness thing. And so it's very complete, uh, program. And so, and it's free. Uh, and so, uh, I have some online classes as well. And, uh, so it's just, uh, it's a pretty, pretty thorough wraparound program. How can we help you grow this? Well, uh, I have a travel ball team that I'm trying to get off the ground. And again, it's about the funding and it's in 11 cities. So we started in San Francisco, which is where I'm born and reared from. I came out of the Western edition, which used to be called the Fillmore. Uh, and, uh, we come over to Oakland and then we have Berkeley, we have, uh, Richmond, San Pablo, Vallejo, Fairfield, Pittsburgh, Antioch, and Marin County. And so, you know, that's, 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 uh, both, most of the league is basically about 80% black. And, and so this is what I'm trying to do to get black kids to play baseball again. But at the same time, the college education is even more relevant because let's face it, maybe 2% of them will, will ever get drafted and, and go on to play professional baseball, but we can get many more into college. And, and so this could stop some of the incarceration and the deaths that go on in our community, the drugs and the alcohol and the, all the other dysfunctional aspects of life that they partake in. And if you don't catch these kids by 12 years old, then they're ready for the streets, the streets get them. And so having a formal education, will teach them that there's something better in the world to strive for. Everybody always needs help, and they always need funding. How can people get a hold of you so they can help you grow this? Well, right now I'm working on a brand-new website. I'm, I've gotten rid of the, uh, the other one, and because of the additional things that I have in the program. But uh, 
my email is MikeNorris56 at gmail.com. And my website should be up in the next two weeks. And I'm going to keep the same one, which was Success. Well, when you get that up, you contact us and, and we'll start promoting it for you because what you're doing is great work in the community and our community needs more people like you. Well, you know, I, I've been blessed. You know, God is so good. You know, I went through the drug and alcohol aspect myself that partially went to an ending of my career. And so I've cleaned myself up in the last 20 years, 21 years I've been free of drugs and alcohol. And so it's, it, it's just time now that I give back to the community and be able to educate and not make the mistakes that I made. Mike, thank you so much for the time. Be safe, be well, and uh, we'll have you on again once you get that website up and we'll help, we'll help you promote and fundraise. Thank you so much, guys. I really appreciate that, and I enjoyed the interview. You guys asked great questions today. Thank you. Well, that'll do it for A's Unfiltered. We want to thank Scott Emerson, Brad Ziegler, Steve McCaddy, and Mike Norris. Now back to A's Cast, powered by TuneIn. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics.